This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Heal. Keir Starmer gave a speech this morning giving his vision for the country. He was just down the road from where Rishi Sunak gave his speech yesterday in East London. James, what did Keir have to say? Well, I think really the thing which will get the headlines is the take-back control bill he proposes to empower local communities and uh, more devolution throughout the country and whereby local regions can ask for more powers from Westminster and they'll be granted under this piece of legislation. I think this shows that uh, Keir Starmer's attempt to park his tanks on the Tories' lawn, steal the clothes, and also helps put to bed that Remain issue. Obviously, he was an ardent Remainer, campaigned against leave, came up against one of the most effective campaigns in recent history with take back control and uh, the 2019 election so it's an attempt really to try and put that to bed and also a more communitarian theme looking forward and I think it also just shows that um, going ahead in the future I think this, this other gender of levelling up is there to be one and Keir Starmer clearly thinks he can get something out of that and I think it's also worth mentioning his delivery too and his delivery has improved and I think that you can definitely see he's a man who has com- confidence is growing given he's got 20 points behind the polls uh, this speech was about more about big picture stuff so we know a lot about what the kind of big vision for the next Labour government's going to be but less of a retail offering but given we've still got another almost two years until the next election that's probably no bad thing necessarily. Isabel what did you make of Starmer taking on the take back control motto from the referendum campaign? I mean I think it was audacious and it can be seen as an admission of failure when you have to steal someone else's slogan um, rather than come up with your own amazingly catchy one but the benefits of it are that it's already established people have already heard it um, and therefore uh, you know as an opposition with with less airtime than the government you don't have to spend months trying to get people to learn it actually you know over the past decade every so often because I you know have no life I quiz Labour front benches on what their party's slogan is and I'd say probably about 80% of the time none of them have any idea and they come up with sort of various like oh is it fairer britain for tomorrow or something like that whereas you know everyone knows take back control it's driven a lot of remaining labor types absolutely bananas um over the past few years and so it's you know it's instantly memorable it does as james just said allow him to deal with the i voted remain issue in a way that suggests that he was still listening to those voters when he talked to them. And that's, you know, that's obviously a very important part of Labour trying to win back those Leave voters who then, you know, in large numbers turned to their Conservatives in 2019 uh, when Labour lost a lot of red wall uh, seats, as they're called. So I, I can understand why he did that. It also... Uh, handily ties in with the policies that he wants to announce, which is always helpful, but not necessarily a requirement for a slogan for a political party. And they were quite interesting, you know, big devolution of power, right to request more powers um, for local areas. And, uh, you know, it's not a big change uh, in direction from the devolution that we've seen under the Conservatives, but it's still significant and something that people like Lisa Nandy have been working on for a very, very long time in opposition. So it feels as though now Labour has a vision, whether it's an exciting vision or not, I'm not sure, but it is something that sort of underpins it a little bit more. And 
I suspect that we'll start to get more complaints about whether there are retail offers from the Labour Party than, oh, Keir Starmer doesn't know what he wants to do. Because I think now, having said that he wants a decade of national renewal, he's also suggesting that he doesn't just have a sort of plan to win and then faff about repairing things for five years before, you know, going back into opposition, that he actually has a long-term reform plan. I think people will start to say, well, you know, what are the tangible things that voters will think, oh, if I vote for them, I'll get that. I'm a little bit more sceptical in that I think every opposition does this and talks about new politics. David Cameron did it, you know, punch and Judy politics. I think it is good politics in the sense that I think, as James Forsyth used to say before he went off to work for number 10, um, that it was an easy, cost-free way for Labour to punch a Tory bruise. You can basically promise a lot of this stuff in terms of sort of constitutional reform and it doesn't cost a huge amount in terms of, say, you know, if you're going to do more public sector spending, you know, that'll cost billions. And Rachel Reeves obviously put a lot of fiscal constraints on the party at the moment and they've broadly kept that line. I think it's a good way of sort of saying we're going to do change without promising the billions that we saw in the 2019 uh, manifesto. Isabel, I guess part of the reason why Take Back Control was so effective was because it also had something radical behind it. You were talking about Starmer's need um, to have some retail policies, but again, then he said he doesn't want to spend huge amounts of money. So what other areas do you think, other than devolution, Starmer might be able to promise some sort of radical change? I think, given the noises he made today and given the things we've heard from Wes Streeting, his Shadow Health Secretary, including actually in an interview in The Spectator uh, last autumn, we are going to see some interesting proposals for NHS reform, actually, which would be very welcome because Labour tends to have much more political space to do that sort of thing. When Starmer talked today about a partnership model between government and the private sector, I thought that was very interesting for, you know, all sorts of different policy areas, that it's not just a case of sort of an interventionist government setting up and trying to replicate what the private sector should be doing if it was strong in an area. That was a big complaint of voters at the end of the, the Brown government and has been a really interesting ingredient in some of the concerns about green jobs so when I talk to Conservative MPs in red wall seats, so you know, very recently Labour seats, they said to me that if their party promises green jobs, their voters think that this is like someone working for the council wearing a lanyard um, in basically a sort of non-job as opposed to a high-tech, high-skilled job of the future, which is what politicians imagine when they say green jobs. And that is a legacy, I think, of some of the, the more interventionist schemes of the Brown government, not just in terms of job creation, but I'm thinking in terms of, you know, the housing market renewal schemes that were in the northwest, northeastern midlands uh, of England, um, that that really, you know, were were a, a lot of central government intervention and quite unpopular in, in lots of areas as well. So this partnership model, I think, is going to be really interesting in lots of areas. And I think it's going to be particularly interesting in the NHS. We've heard by Streeting already saying that the independent sector has a role to play in driving down the treatment backlogs. I think we're going to see a lot more of an emphasis on what matters being what works, which was a dirty phrase in Labour for, for quite a few years. And James, I said at the beginning of the podcast, Keir Starmer was um, giving this speech just down the road from where Rishi Sunak gave his yesterday. How do you compare what the two leaders had to say both I think that Keir Starmer's will probably received slightly better by the commentariat partly because he has the whole benefit of being in opposition and can then lay the claim to the mantle of change much easier than Rishi Sunak does I think that 
Keir Starmer has one thing which is going to come out of it, which is the take back control thing, which I think will, will go down sort of well. Uh, I think both of them are able now to sort of set up where they think the agenda is going to be over the next two years, and they've both put their vision out there. And I think in some ways, both of them, although they come from different democratic traditions, you know, I think Sunak is a pretty economic liberal, sort of in the broad mainstream of the Tory party, Keir Starmer's from the sort of soft left tradition of the party. I think that both of them will probably fight the election on, on, on similar things, communities and the economy uh, and certain issues about immigration and, and the NHS. But um, I think that both will be reasonably happy with what they've done today, Give, other than the technical issues, which made Keir Starmer sound like a Dalek at times. Um, I would say he probably did slightly better. And as well, let's finish on the royal family as we did yesterday. The Guardian has got hold of a copy of Prince Harry's new book, Spare, which is coming out on the 10th of January. They ran a story this morning saying that William attacked him in Nottingham Cottage in an argument over Meghan, says he grabbed me by the collar, ripping my necklace and knocked me to the floor. Tell us about these latest revelations, if you can. Yeah, so that's uh, the, the key one that's uh, led the story, that led that's led the news agenda today he also claims that the nazi costume that he still gets so much opprobrium for that he wore at a party was as much william and kate's idea as it was his and that they were sort of rolling with laughter and saying oh this is so much funnier than the leotard that willie is wearing and so not really taking ownership of uh, the fact that he was still the person wearing the costume but suggesting it was other people's fault as as well i think the impact of this is it's going to be very difficult for the palace to maintain its current strategy of just not responding to all of the allegations that are coming out from um, the privacy-loving Sussexes. Because Harry, as much as he says he wants his brother and his father back, I mean, he is, you know, he's trashing the reputation of a future king now. And that may well be entirely justified because the... The future king may may well have attacked him, um, but I think it's very difficult to just maintain the dignified silence that has characterised the royal family for for so long. It's not enough, probably, just to have a a briefing war through sources. There will probably need to be some kind of response. So if not, then you end up in a situation where you just have, you know, th- three more books apparently from the Sussexes coming. Um, whoopie do um with more um with more allegations and revelations and more attempts really to chip away at the monarchy um i mean i've said before in the podcast i'd be fascinated to to hear harry's answer on whether he's now a republican because i'm not sure you can do this much damage without thinking that you don't want the institution to exist anymore yeah james this story alone is i think worse than anything that there was in the netflix documentary series that they did do you think the palace will respond to this in a different way than they did previous allegations no i don't um i think they i'm not sure how much you can say because once you get into answering questions about one thing you then have to get into answering questions about others um you know harry's doing these uh, sit down interviews on with anderson cooper and tom bradby if william did a similar thing what's to stop an interviewer 
uh, asking about Prince Andrew, for instance. You know, what's, what's to stop uh, asking about the race stuff? I mean, that's all. I think I still think the most da- dangerous allegation that's come out over the last couple of years for the royal family was the claims about race, or how that was certainly reported. Uh, this, I think, can be dismissed slightly as uh, you know, sort of brotherly scrap, etc. And you only hear, you're only going to hear one side of it. I think as long as you only get one side of the story, most people will perhaps give a sort of benefit of the judgment, given how some of Harry and Meghan's claims have previously not stood up to scrutiny, and as um, the late Queen once said, recollections may vary. Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you very much for listening.